You are Locked On Rockets, your daily podcast on the Houston Rockets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome in to a new episode of Locked On Rockets, your home for podcast commentary of all things Houston Rockets basketball. As always, I'm your host, Ben DuBose, Rockets correspondent for Sports Talk 790, the team's official radio flagship. As we chat this Thursday, the Carmelo Anthony acquisition, long awaited, is still not quite to the finish line, but I think we've moved this from the two-yard line to about the half-yard line. That's because on Wednesday, the trade became official. We knew about it last Thursday, but finally, after nearly a week, the three-way Oklahoma City-Atlanta-Philadelphia deal is now official. Right now, Carmelo's property of the Atlanta Hawks. The next step in the process is the Hawks officially waiving him as part of a buyout, and then Carmelo making it through the 48-hour waiver claims process, which he certainly will because no team has anywhere close to enough cap room, even if they wanted to claim him to take him at his existing one-year, $27 million salary, but he's not on waivers yet. He has to be released by the Hawks. My suspicion is the reason he has not been released is that even though the trade is now announced, all teams involved have up to a week following the announcement to complete the physicals for the players involved, so the Hawks may not go through with waiving him until they know that the trade is 100% finalized, and even with it announced, it's still not quite all the way to the finish line. So the next step in the process would be for the Hawks to waive him. In theory, it could happen as soon as today, and maybe since the teams knew about this trade nearly a week before, that helps the physical process get expedited a little bit relative to a normal off-season move that comes about, say, on the same day. But at this point, I wouldn't expect it to be that imminent. And even if we do get news that the Hawks waive Carmelo today, again, you still have to wait at least 48 hours for him to pass through waivers and then make the news official following that. So in short, while Melo is one step closer to Houston, we still don't have the smoking gun. It's not done. Maybe it'll happen by next Tuesday at 545. That would be the hope. But for now, we still F5, refresh, and hope that that today is the day that Carmelo gets waived. Yesterday was the trade. Maybe today is the waiving. And then from there, the 48-hour waiver period needs to expire before this thing can be made official. So other than... The three-way becoming official. There's not too much new on the Carmelo front today. So today's show will not just be about Carmelo. We're also going to talk about the signing of young prospect Isaiah Hartenstein. The Rockets using a small portion of the MLE to do that yesterday. And we're also going to address a new interview from Daryl Morey with the Space City Scoop blog in which Morey effectively confirms what we laid out in Monday's show, which is that the plan now, after reports leaked that Melo would sign for the veteran minimum instead of the mid-level exception. The plan seems to be the Rockets holding over that mid-level exception for buyout season after the 2018-2019 regular season gets going. So later in the show, we'll address that plan and what needs to happen for that to be a success relative to, say, using it this offseason, most notably on Luke Bamute. That's a case in which a Rocket left that presumably would have stayed had they been willing to use the MLE on him at this time. We'll get to all of that in the coming minutes, but for now I do want to start off with Carmelo Anthony because I know that's what is on everyone's minds these days. And while there's not too much news in terms of his immediate future, what's actually happening on the transaction wire 
What we do have is some new comments from Carmelo, courtesy of ESPN's Jamil Hill, who bumped into Carmelo at a private Nike event in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday night, and the full interview is at ESPN.com. Now, Carmelo played coy about the possibilities with the Rockets, because until he's waived, until it's official, I think if there's one thing he has learned from the past two off-seasons trying to leverage himself to Houston, there's no reason to go public with your plans on the record until... Every I is dotted and every T is crossed. So you're not going to see him comment on the Rockets situation until he is formally free. And as of now, he is not. He is, at the moment, if you go to the Hawks website, he's on the Atlanta roster, as silly as that may seem. But while Carmelo didn't address the the Rockets specifically, his comments about the process, in my opinion, were encouraging. Because we know the risk that comes with Melo, specifically in terms of buying in to the system. Will he be happy in a number three role? Will he be committed defensively? We know his history with Mike D'Antoni. And while there's a lot of things on paper that suggest that the experience in Houston could be different, starting with the presence of Chris Paul, as good of a leader as it gets in the NBA, and also perhaps Carmelo's best friend in the NBA, we haven't heard that much from Carmelo. And a lot of that, as I said, is by design, with Carmelo almost getting to Houston last offseason, but it blowing up in his face, and the Knicks walking back their promise to move him to Houston. I think you've seen a much more diligent Melo this offseason in terms of measuring his public commentary. And for those of us as Rockets fans, what that challenges is the idea of how much is Carmelo actually thinking versus how much are we projecting on him when we go through the various dynamics and whether he's willing to buy in to the optimal role at this time in his career, Carmelo, 34 years old, entering his 16th NBA season. Besides the obvious factors of Chris Paul versus Russell Westbrook, a more traditional point guard, his friend getting it to his shooting pockets, Houston being a better team, besides the obvious things like that, the below the radar things that I've said could make Houston a better situation for Carmelo than Oklahoma City was. Number one, it's the contract. For the first time, I think Carmelo is staring at his basketball mortality, and at this point, there's pressure on him to conform to prove that he can be a part of a winning team, whereas a year ago in Oklahoma City, he knew that his next year's contract was effectively guaranteed at $27 million. There wasn't that much pressure, and with Oklahoma City paying him that much money on a two-year deal, it's not like they were just going to cut him midway through the season, whereas the Rockets on a one-year veteran minimum deal, if things aren't going well, then yeah, the Rockets can cut bait pretty easily and move on from the experiment. So I think there's a lot more pressure on Carmelo, and I I think that that goes a long way to putting him in the right state of mind. But perhaps the biggest factor of all is something that I've referred to as the shotgun wedding factor when it comes to his failures in Oklahoma City. And what I mean by the shotgun wedding factor is the fact that the trade was put together At the last possible moment of the offseason, we all know what happened. Effectively, Melo and the Knicks went into stare-down mode. Melo trying to leverage his way to Houston. The Knicks holding out for a better offer. And both sides were counting on the final week or so before training camp that the other would blink, either Carmelo or the Knicks, and say, hey, we don't want to bring this distraction, this ugliness to media day, to training camp. And as it turned out, Carmelo blinked and expanded his no-trade list before the Knicks would blink and accept a package from Houston involving Ryan Anderson. Well, the problem with this scenario is that it put Carmelo behind the eight ball with his new team. Billy Donovan didn't find out about it in Oklahoma City until the last minute, so really, Carmelo's introduction to Oklahoma City 
was at Media Day. Effectively, his first day included a practice. So there was no real plan as far as X's and O's integrating him into the scheme. There was no ability to work with him in the offseason in terms of getting him to accept a certain role. It all happened on the fly. Whereas here in Houston, Carmelo being an unrestricted free agent after his buyout and getting waived from the Hawks, he'll be choosing Houston, and perhaps more importantly than choosing Houston, he'll be doing it with about two-plus months to go, certainly before the regular season, but nearly two months before even training camp begins. So there'll be plenty of time for Mike D'Antoni to map out a plan of how to best use him for the Rockets organizationally to talk to Carmelo about what his ideal role should be. I've had guests on this show, going back to Brian Geltziler, Hoops Critic on Twitter, who have been very critical of simply the X's and O's of how Billy Donovan used Carmelo in Oklahoma City and the need to run your offense through him at the elbow or in the post at certain stretches, maybe early in the second and fourth quarters against opposing bench units where you can further hide Carmelo's defensive deficiencies now at 34 years old. And that could be the ideal usage for him in Houston, as I've mentioned, those minutes that Harden is not out there. You need someone else to really be the focal point in terms of your scoring load. All of that makes sense on paper. But again, to some degree, we've been projecting because we don't know exactly what Melo thinks. He's been quiet, and I, my guess is the first time we really hear from him will be when he's introduced in Houston. And the last time we heard from him was his exit day interview in Oklahoma City, in which clearly I think he was in an agitated state of mind and said some things that even he might regret at, at this point out of frustration. And who can blame him for that? Because certainly it was a challenging year for him personally, and then the team went through an unexpected loss in the first round to the Jazz, so I think emotions were very high at the time. But regardless, since then, for two-plus months, it's been a void of silence, and we've been projecting things. Well, courtesy of Jamil Hill's interview with Carmelo on Wednesday night, we heard from Carmelo, and I'm going to read you this excerpt about the timing issues with the Thunder, and to me, it's pretty encouraging because it verified the, the scenario, especially in terms of what I call the shotgun wedding that we've been discussing for weeks. Here's Carmelo's words. At the end of the day, it wasn't a good fit. I think last year, and I haven't talked about this before, everything was just so rushed, going to the team for media day and the day before training camp, then guys already had something in place, and I come along in the 25th hour like, oh shit, Melo, just come on and join us. Like, you can figure it out since you've been around the game for a long time. That's why it was so inconsistent. At times, I had to figure it out on my own rather than somebody over there or people over there helping me. Folks, that is the shotgun wedding factor. We've deduced it for a while, but it's nice to hear Carmelo actually say it. So in terms of where his head is at, to me, it's a good indication that he gets it. And it doesn't guarantee success, but it tells you that he is in the right state of mind to at least give it a chance. Another aspect of the interview, and this will be the last thing I reference for it, also suggests, in my opinion, that he is in the right frame of mind entering Houston. This is the closing paragraph from the ESPN.com story. I think winning, at the end of the day, rewrites everything, Carmelo said. It settles everything. I also look back at this past year. When we were winning, the story was written already. When we started losing, the story is written. It's almost premeditated. I'm playing ball. I'm happy. I'm excited about what's to come, wherever that may be. Folks, the biggest question about Carmelo Anthony is whether he is willing to sacrifice his role for the good of the team. And you can point to last year, some of the inconsistencies and his willingness to do that. But folks, the Thunder were not winning at a high level. It wasn't even guaranteed until the last three or four days of the season that they would even make the playoffs. And then they lost in the first round to the Jazz. So this whole idea that Carmelo is about himself and that he wants shots at the expense of team wins... Well, it's a little silly in terms of the Oklahoma City example, 
because the team wasn't winning at anywhere near the high level that everyone expected them to going to the season. So everyone wants to help more, especially you have a guy who clearly has become the number three in terms of usage there after Westbrook and Paul George, and the team isn't winning enough. He's human. It's natural to wonder, hey, could we be winning more if I'm getting the touches that I am accustomed to? In Houston, if things work out the way we expect them to, and the Rockets have the vast majority of the foundation of a team that won 65 and 17 and effectively had the Warriors on the ropes before Chris Paul's ill-timed hamstring injury, they're going to win games. And it's not a secret that James Harden and Chris Paul are better basketball players than Carmelo Anthony. The only way you could see tension over his role is if he's prioritizing himself ahead of team success. And while, again, I think you could logically deduce that Carmelo picking Houston, especially over a team like Miami, suggests that he's about winning because clearly there are situations outside of Houston that would give him a better shot in terms of more minutes, more shot attempts, more touches, etc., etc. It's nice to hear the words out of his mouth that I think winning, at the end of the day, rewrites everything. It's not to say that this guarantees success. If the Rockets go through a downstretch, it's entirely possible that Carmelo might think that the reason that they're struggling is because he's not getting as many touches or shots. There are no guarantees to any of this. What you want are indications that he is in the right frame of mind to accept a lesser role. And if the Rockets are winning and continuing what they did last year with James Harden and Chris Paul leading the way, then these comments from Carmelo himself, not projecting, not assuming, not making logical-based reasoning arguments, but comments from Carmelo's mouth, suggest that he understands that the key in terms of his narrative defining his career is winning basketball games. And to me, that puts him in the right frame of mind entering Houston. It doesn't guarantee success, but it's nice to hear it out of his mouth that all the things that we have been sort of deducing based on piecing reports together and logic, well, it's nice to actually have Carmelo spell them out himself prior to the acquisition in Houston becoming official. Now, moving on to subjects that are a little more concrete. The Rockets are still waiting to make the Carmelo Anthony acquisition official, but one thing that was made official yesterday, Wednesday afternoon, was the signing of Isaiah Hartenstein, young prospect big, who averaged nearly a double-double in just 22 minutes per game in the Vegas Summer League. Hartenstein was the Rockets' second-round pick a year ago, seemed to take a huge jump, at least between the 2017 Summer League and the 2018. And for a Rockets team that's capped out for the foreseeable future with James Harden, Chris Paul, and we presume Clint Capella all locked up for the ensuing three to five years, then you need to develop talent internally because you have limited resources externally, especially as not just an over-the-cap team, but as a tax-paying team. So it's nice to keep Hartenstein around. But the most interesting thing about the Hartenstein signing is that we have confirmed, courtesy of Mike Scotto of The Athletic, that it's a three-year deal involving the use of Houston's mid-level exception. Well, the fact that it was a three-year deal confirms that because that's the only way. In terms of signing young players, you have to, when you're an over-the-cap team, either use you use one of your exceptions, either your mid-level exception or your minimum salary exception. Effectively, minimum salary exception means you can consistently sign minimum players until your roster is full. And minimum salaries cannot be three-year deals. You could have two years at most on a minimum deal. So the fact that it was three years made it inherently part of the mid-level exception when you consider the Rockets' resources. They have not yet signed second-round pick DeAnthony Melton out of USC, but it seems pretty clear that they will use the MLE to secure Melton for three years as well, rather than the usual two that comes if you give them the minimum salary exception. Pretty clear that when the Rockets announced the signings earlier this month of Vince Edwards, 
later second-round pick, and then Gary Clark, undrafted out of Cincinnati, but not Melton. That was pretty clear they were saving other resources for Melton at this point. It's just about the legalese of the contract and the timing of when he signs that deal. Ultimately, what it means is that an already small mid-level exception gets smaller. While you're using limited portions, starting salary of less than a million on both of those guys, we know Hartenstein is a little over 800000 My guess is the same would hold true for um, DeAnthony Melton. So what that means is the Rockets' $5.3 million mid-level exception, that's what they get as a tax-paying team. That's in contrast to the nearly $9 million they had a year ago as a non-tax-paying team. They used that to sign P.J. Tucker and a very small portion to lock up Joe Chi to a four-year deal. By using the MLE on two young players, even though you're talking about less than a million dollars in terms of the starting salary, when the value is already limited as a taxpaying team to $5.3 million, then that's going to knock it down below $4 million annually. So to me, that may also play a role in the Rockets holding over the MLE, which clearly seems to be the plan. More on that in the next segment into the season for buyouts rather than use it now, because the already limited amount is even lower based on the fact that the Rockets are using it for these prospects. And the reason it's a big deal, I want to start with that before we move into why the Rockets are rolling it into the regular season and what makes that a successful plan or not. For starters, it's all about cheap labor. As mentioned, you use the MLE to sign guys like Melton and Hartenstein. You get them for three years rather than the maximum of two that you get when you use the minimum salary exception. So you get three seasons taking you into the 2020-21 season when James Harden has the huge bump in his player salary. Actually, I think Harden gets the big bump a year from now, but of course it only continues to rise. So you get three years of cheap labor rather than two, and then you also get full bird rights at the conclusion of that three-year deal. I misspoke in Monday's show. I mentioned that they would be restricted at the end of three years, but unrestricted if they're on a two-year deal. No, they would be restricted in both cases. The difference between the three and the two is that while you'd be restricted in both scenarios, in the three-year deal path, which is what the Rockets are taking with Melton and Hartenstein, then you have full bird rights at the end of it. Whereas after the two-year deal, you have only early bird rights. So not only would the Rockets lose out on a year of cheap labor, which is the most important part of this, but in terms of if they hit their next contract, they would be somewhat limited in terms of the resources that they could use to re-sign them. And sometimes that leads you to scenarios like the Miami Heat and Tyler Johnson, a contract that they regret to this day when the Brooklyn Nets gave him a four-year, $50 million deal, incredibly convoluted structure based on the early bird rights and the matching. It's that arenas provision of the collective bargaining agreement. Effectively, it was a four-year, $50 million deal in which the first two years were above $5 million a season. And then the third and fourth years, it jumps to over $19 million per season. And that's what happens sometimes if you hit on a second-round pick, which the Rockets, I think, are especially bullish on DeAnthony Melton and they hit the market because, well, the Rockets would be limited not having their full bird rights to giving them what they're worth. And if another team wanted to put them in a difficult spot, that's what they could do. And clearly, I think Miami regrets that Tyler Johnson contract to this day. Most important thing, of course, is one extra year of cheap labor. But in addition to that, full bird rights so that you control the player's future, being able to offer them what they're worth on top of just being restricted. Again, the Rockets could match whether it be two or three years. It's just the uh, non-full bird rights scenario would make it even more challenging in terms of potentially opening up the market to those players. For the most part, though, a lot of that is just salary cap legalese. The main point is this. When you have a team that you have gone all in on, which the Rockets clearly have, this iteration with James Harden, Chris Paul, Clint Capella, it is not easy to get an infusion of youth. 
And generally, what has slowly eroded a lot of teams in this era of the current collective bargaining agreement. I think back to the Miami Heat with LeBron and the most recent iteration of the Cleveland Cavaliers with LeBron. What you have generally had when a team has gone into luxury tax to keep the current group together, especially when there are a lot of veterans, is just a slow decaying of the role players around the star. Maybe the star is able to hold up into his 30s, but many of the role players are not, and there are just so few available resources to upgrade that supporting cast. Generally, these teams, like the Rockets, will be in tax ter- are in tax territory, so you only have the taxpayer MLE to use. That's a smaller amount. Your first-round picks are either at the very back of the first round, or in many cases, not even available because they were traded as part of a deal to bring in more veteran help, often at the urging of the superstar player. And ultimately, what leads to the unraveling of the group is just chipping away at the edges. You get a little bit less from the role players every year as they age. And I'm not going to lie, that was a possibility with the Rockets going forward, having so many role players in their 30s. In my opinion, also played a role in why they were willing to let guys that are 33 and 32 years old, like Trevor Ariza and Luke Bamute walk, because I think they were aware of that. The bottom line is that if you're using your full taxpayer MLE, which is already a limited resource to begin with because you're paying the tax, on one player every summer, you generally are not going to be adding to the team enough to offset the slow erosion of skills from your veteran supporting cast. And even if you do hit on a few second-round picks or undrafted guys from time to time, if you're signing them to the minimum, then it becomes pretty difficult to keep them together because even owners that are willing to pay a ton in luxury taxes have their limits, and at some point they're either going to get away or they're going to cost you so much that maybe it eliminates your ability to use one of your other exceptions to bring in someone. So that's why using a portion of your mid-level exception to give three- and four-year deals to guys like Isaiah Hartenstein, DeAnthony Melton, Joe Chi is so important because that gives you a built-in pipeline of guys that are not just here for one or two seasons, but for a long time, three or four years is effectively the current iteration of a group giving the contract rules of today's NBA that you can count on to potentially give you in-house replacements to your supporting cast. If a guy like Nene or Ryan Anderson ages out of being effective, okay, well then you've got Hartenstein and Joe Chi waiting in the wings to potentially take those backup five minutes. If Chris Paul needs more games off entering his mid-30s, then you've got DeAnthony Melton waiting in the wings rather than having to spend resources to find a fourth guard on the market because then you're spending what limited resources you have at a fourth guard instead of being able to address, say, bringing in more 3 and D wings. In short, the toughest thing about being a tax-paying team in the current MLE is maintaining the depth of your supporting cast because, in general, the shelf life for role players is a lot shorter than it is for stars, and while you can keep the stars together because of these massive max deals, Ultimately, you're not able to add to your team, given the constraints of being a taxpayer, at a quick enough rate to offset the erosion of talent from role players entering their 30s. So that's why it's important to have a built-in pipeline, not just one or two years, but three or four years of young talent that you can develop within your system. And then hopefully, as some of your veterans start to age out, then you have guys like Melton, like Isaiah Hartenstein, like Joe Chi, waiting in the wings, able to step into those roles and thus you don't have to use what you can concentrate your efforts on using what limited resources you have in terms of future taxpayer MLEs, etc., where you really need them, as opposed to having a problem of filling depth across the board. Now, with that said, 
The Rockets still do have most of their current mid-level exception available. While they're using small portions to bring in Isaiah Hartenstein and Anthony Melton to longer-term deals, and I think that's a good idea based on the considerations outlined in the past segment, they still have nearly $4 million of it, perhaps a little bit more than that, depending on the exact accounting figures where Anthony Melton's first-year salary comes in, to use elsewhere. And we've suspected for a few days, really ever since we learned Monday, if you want more on Carmelo's contract, tune into that show at our Lockdown Rockets archives. But ever since we learned that Carmelo was going to take the minimum, it seemed clear to me that the plan for Gerald Morey was to roll over most of the mid-level exception into buyout season after the season begins, probably in December, but then especially January and February, because it should be a loaded buyout market. You have lots of your usual names, guys on large expiring contracts on bad teams. Think Tyson Chandler in Phoenix, Damari Carroll in Brooklyn, those types of players. Then you also have a lot of guys signed on one-year deals this summer, including Trevor Ariza in Phoenix, who could presumably also fit the category because there's so many more one-year deals than usual in this summer's free agency class based on all the financial constraints. We've talked about the last few weeks, the summer of 2016 contracts clogging cap room around the entire NBA, including in Houston with Ryan Anderson. So between the buyout market seeming strong during the season and not that many names still being out there on the free agency market, it seems pretty clear to me that Gerald Morey was going to save the remainder of the mid-level exception until the regular season, potentially give them a leg up on some of these signings during the year, potentially. And as I said earlier with Carmelo, while it's, we can certainly deduce some of these things through logical reasoning, it's also good to hear it from the horse's mouth. And just as earlier in the show, I replayed comments from Carmelo Anthony, now I'm going to read you comments from Daryl Morey. In a really good interview with the Space City Scoop blog, Michael asked the question, what other additions besides the one you can't talk about, he's referring to Melo there, of course, are the Rockets looking to make this summer? And Daryl's response, I think we're always active in the trade market. If we see something, we don't have anything imminent there, but before February, we always try to add something to the team. I think that has a decent chance. In terms of signings, probably not much left. We do have our past draft picks or recent draft picks to sign. That's alluding to Melton and Hardenstein, so we have to get those done. But signings-wise, I don't think you'll see anything until later in the year in the buyout-type season. So that confirms pretty strongly that the mid-level exception will be rolled over, barring someone very unexpected making it to the market this summer. And you never know. Sometimes some of these buyouts get done really early. Obviously, Dwight Howard and Carmelo Anthony have been bought out already. Last year, we had uh, Dwayne Wade bought out just before training camp. So you never know. Maybe someone shakes free before the season even starts. But barring that, it seems like the Rockets are willing to hold over the MLE until the regular season. Now, before we examine the full implications of those comments, I want to make clear, I think when Maury says that in terms of signings, probably not much left, I think he's talking about larger signings, a mid-level exception. My guess is that if someone's available at the minimum, and keep in mind, for the veteran minimum contract for guys that are established in the league of $2.4 million, the league reimburses for nearly half the tab there, almost 40%. So if someone they like is willing to play for the minimum, and all the Rockets have to do to clear a roster spot is get rid of Shinani Wanuaku, who doesn't really seem to have a place entering his third year, then yeah, I think the Rockets could presumably bring in another minimum guy this summer. I don't think they're really done. When I think he says done, I think they mean signings of larger consequence. I think that's an allusion to the MLE. On Monday's show, I mentioned a lot of the MLE candidates, and I would say it starts potentially Trevor Ariza if there's a down year in Phoenix. You want more 3 and D to replace what you lost in Trevor Ariza? Why not bring the same player back? That would obviously be an ideal fit, and I think if you want that, you certainly need the Suns to lose as many games as possible. But what if the Suns win a lot of games? Or what if they just like Ariza's impact 
in their clubhouse around their young players. It's far from a given that Ariza or any one particular player that we've named will actually hit the market. We can put together logical reasons why they might, but there are cases where a team just wants to keep them. We saw it last year, the Lakers with Brooke Lopez. Everyone assumed that Lopez would hit the market. Well, the Lakers had a season in which they won a few more games than I think a lot of people expected. They liked the impact, the vibe in the in the locker room, so they chose to roll with Lopez the entire season rather than buy him out and try to get as many wins as they, they could. And who knows, maybe it made them more attractive for LeBron James. So while this plan can work out, it's far from a certainty that it will. It's a gamble. And so in my opinion, if we're going to evaluate, and it's too soon to judge whether it's a good plan or not, because we have no idea who they ultimately use the MLE on. As I mentioned, I think they're prioritizing the 2018 season over the 2019. Talked about that a lot on Monday's show, because by signing Mello to the minimum, if Mello works out, you're probably going to have to use your 2019 mid-level exception to retain him. So if you're sacrificing the 2019 mid-level exception for that, you have to hope that you get something good out of your 2018 MLE, which you are saving since you're not using it on Carmelo. But is it a good idea? It's going to depend on who they get in the regular season to fill that void. And in my opinion, what it's going to come down to is what I've called on Twitter the Bamute test. And what I mean by that is, is it a better acquisition than if you had just kept Luke Bamute? Because when we talk about losing defense, Ariza's the top of the line guy for the Rockets that they've lost, but they lost Luke Bamute as well. And say what you will about him falling out of the rotation in the playoffs, the risk with his twice dislocated shoulder. But he was a guy who ate a lot of minutes in the regular season, was a very quality player for Houston on the defensive end of the floor. The Rockets either wanted him to take the non-bird tender or the minimum. Instead, he went to the Clippers on a deal one year, $4.3 million, which really is worth about $500,000 less than that by the time you factor in cost of living, taxes, all those types of things, living in California instead of Texas. So clearly, in my opinion, had the Rockets, a better team in which Luke was very comfortable, been willing to give the remainder of the mid-level exception after Melton Hartenstein to Luke, I think Luke would have stayed rather than going to the Clippers. The Rockets chose not to do that. Now, personally, I think it's a defensible decision because you have James Ennis coming in who provides you some of the same 3 and D qualities at that wing spot. You have Carmelo Anthony coming in, who is not the same type of player, not nearly as good defensively, but it's going to eat at least some of the same minutes at the forward spots and obviously offensively be an enormous upgrade. So it's not like the Rockets are as desperate for minutes as you might think. I did a sample exercise on my Twitter timeline of the minutes per game when the Rockets are healthy this season, and I came up with about 36 per game for Harden, about 30 per game for Chris Paul, P.J. Tucker, Eric Gordon, Clint Capella, maybe... 28 for Carmelo, 24 for James Ennis, 12 for whoever the backup center is out of Nene, Ryan Anderson, Hartenstein, Joe Chi. And between those eight players at the top of your rotation, that's 220 minutes about, and I was fairly conservative, I thought, that's about 220 minutes of the 240 in a given game. So you only have 20 minutes left, and you still have guys we haven't even talked about, like Gerald Green, Michael Carter-Williams, DeAnthony Melton, etc. So it's not like the Rockets are desperate for minute fillers. The depth with Carmelo and James Ennis is better than you might think. The other reason I think the Rockets were willing to gamble on holding the MLE into the season is because it gives you more flexibility. It gives you more options. For example, Maury mentions potentially doing a trade before February, and I think that could be alluding to Ryan Anderson, because as mentioned, the longer you go holding on to that contract, the more of a positive asset he becomes when there's less of a payout and he gets closer to expiring. What if you're able to use Ryan Anderson in a deal for 3 and D help? 
Well, then by saving the MLE, you could use the MLE on a need elsewhere. Maybe say a backup center if Tyson Chandler in the last year of his contract becomes available. Or who knows, maybe there's an injury somewhere that happens, maybe even at the guard spots with Chris Paul, Eric Gordon, James Harden's one of those where you feel like you need more guard help. The point is, if you save the MLE until buyout seasons, not only can you potentially get a defensive stopper if you still think you want someone like a Trevor Ariza or even a Damari Carroll, Jared Dudley, whoever hits the market at the time, Wes Matthews out of Dallas is another veteran that I could see making sense. But holding the MLE also gives you flexibility that if either you fill the 3 and D need through a Ryan Anderson trade or some other deal, or if there's an unexpected need that arises due to an injury or some unforeseen talent erosion at another spot on the roster, then saving the MLE for buyouts gives you more flexibility in terms of how you can address that. And my thought is that the Rockets, especially with some uncertainty over Luke in particular, given his shoulder situation that he did not have surgery, saw flexibility as more advantageous than the certainty of Luke, given the fact that with Carmelo and James Ennis in the fold, there wasn't that clear of a path or that clear of a need, I should say, for minutes. There was a clear path, because Luke Bamute is a very good player. It's just there wasn't as sore of a need to where his addition would outweigh the benefits of flexibility. That it, that said, it is a gamble, and if the Rockets can't fill the 3 and D spot, either through buyouts or through a Ryan Anderson trade, or if whoever they bring in just isn't as good of a basketball player as Luke Bamute, it will be fair to critique Daryl Morey for that decision. It's too soon to do it now, but... It is a gamble. I understand what the Rockets are considering, but if you want to judge how well it works out, then to me, the Bob Mute test is where you start. And so I'm not really endorsing what the Rockets did because I think whether it's successful is to be determined. It's just to me, I can understand their thought process. And so that's what I want to lay out in this segment, why I think instead of using the mid-level exception on Luke Bob Mute, they're choosing the flexibility path to roll it over into the season. And then we'll see what happens as guys shake free either on the trade market or the buyout market. So with that, we'll wrap up today's show. As always, thanks to you all for tuning in. If you want more content in the interim, as Mellow Watch enters, hopefully its final few days, the best place to get that is on Twitter. I'm on there at Ben Dubose. Show is on there at Locked on Rockets. Also, don't forget email address, LockedOnRockets at gmail.com. Facebook at Facebook.com slash LockedOnRockets. Website at LockedOnRockets.com. Always you can access our content, ask me questions about the team, make suggestions for the show, advertising inquiries, anything we can do to make this a better podcast for you, the Rockets fan, or you, the diehard, um, well, not the diehard human being, the diehard Rockets fan, or being an awesome human being. If we can help with that, don't hesitate to let us know. Also, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Megaphone, if you haven't already subscribed to us, please do. That's how you'll get breaking news alerts when we have a new episode, and if you'd also be kind enough to leave a five-star review, that's how we can make this thing work. We look attractive, and thus that brings in clients, and we're able to make the business model work here at Lockdown Rockets, the most regular podcast covering Houston Rockets basketball. So for now, I will sign off. Hope all of you have a tremendous end to your week and we'll be talking again very soon right here at Lockdown Rockets your home for podcast discussion of all things Houston Rockets basketball